All right, you guys, we're going to start a new series today. We're starting a series on Babylon, living in exile from the book of Daniel. And before we get going on this, I want us to pray really quick. I'm going to use some words that I borrowed from a guy out in North Carolina who does what's called the Church and Culture Conference. So let's pray real quick. God, I pray that you would be with this time as we start talking about these things that are difficult and sometimes sensitive. I pray that the things that are from you would stick and the things that are from me would pass away. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Babylon, living in exile. What are we talking about? What's Babylon? Well, let's get a little bit of overview before we get into the book of Daniel. So Babylon is all over your Bible. It appears from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It's an incredibly significant idea in the scriptures. The first time it shows up is in Genesis chapter 10. So we've just had the creation story, Cain and Abel, the flood, some genealogies where people start building cities. And in chapter 10, a guy builds a city called Babel or Babylon. Then in chapter 11, this thing happens that you might have heard of. The Tower of Babel is built. And all these people come together and they build this tower and they say they want this tower to go up to the heavens because it's going to make them equal to God. What this tower represents in the biblical story is people's attempt to make themselves as important as God is. It's the same thing that happens with Adam and Eve. When they eat the fruit from the tree, they've decided that what they want is more important than what God asks of them. And this is the same story again, but as a city. And so from the very beginning, Babylon is a city that is opposed to the will of God. In chapter 12 is when we start the story of Abraham. And Abraham lives in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. And so he lives in the region of Babylon. So here's our big map. If you can see right here, here's Babylon along the Euphrates River. Babylon. Here's Ur. This is where Abram's from. So they're not right next to each other, but he's where the Tigris and Euphrates asked to travel to a new land of Israel. So here's Jerusalem, and then here's Egypt. So there's our, our map, our overview. And this area, the Babylonian Empire, is in the time frame that we're going to be talking about with the book of Daniel, 612 to 538 BC. So you can see they have a pretty big empire, right? It spans quite a bit of, of the world. This is uh, what's now like Iraq. Um, is in this area. So, next time it shows up is in the books of Kings and Chronicles after David has established the kingdom. So we've gone through the slavery in Babylon. We've been brought out of slavery. We've established judges. That didn't work out. We established kings. And now David's family is part of it. But then the kingdom gets split in half into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember, we were talking about the 8th century prophets. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel gets destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, which predates the Babylonian Empire. Babylonian Empire was happening. Assyria was the big world power then. They destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and then Babylon defeats Assyria and becomes the big bad on the world stage. Okay? So they're the people that are, are running the show around the world at this moment in time. Uh, as the Kings and Chronicles storyline, which is all of the book of Chronicles is about the Judean kings. The book of Kings jumps back and forth between Israel and Judah. But once Israel's no more, it's all Judah. And it's in that period of time that we start seeing Babylon appear a lot as someone who is 
antagonistic to Israel, to say the least. All right. When we get to the prophets, Isaiah has already talked about Babylon some. He's been looking forward into what's going to happen, what kind of destruction God is going to bring on his people if they don't follow his way. Now, if y'all were listening closely to the psalm David read, it talks about this promise that God made to David and to his family to always have someone on the throne. And it said, unless you forsake my covenant. And then the psalm goes on later to say, what's going on, God? Why is no one on the throne anymore? Why, why have you forsaken us? What's happened? Well, what had happened? Well, they didn't, they didn't keep the covenant. They didn't keep the covenant. And so the kingdom eventually gets destroyed. And we'll talk about that in a second. All the way then in the book of Revelation. Oh, sorry. Isaiah was talking about that. Then Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries with Daniel. And at that time is when uh, Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem and takes the people away into exile from the southern kingdom of Judah. All right? So then, way into the end of the Bible, we got Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and Babylon starts showing up again. Now, by this time, Babylon is long gone as a, as a kingdom. And Rome is the big kingdom. But just like in the book of Genesis, when Babylon is there setting the stage for what it means to be a nation in opposition to God... That same idea is brought all the way to Rome as a nation that is not doing what God wants, that is not the same as the kingdom of God. And so Babylon fills in for Rome, but it also fills in for the idea of any kingdom that humans put together. The idea of any kingdom humanity builds is not the same thing as God's kingdom. And we know that, right? Any kingdom people put together is not the same as the kingdom of God. Okay, so important thing to note. Majority of the Old Testament was written and or edited during the Babylonian exile. All right, so a lot of the books of the Bible, we've got parts of them that were written before this time. Most of it's written during and then some after this time when Israel is in exile. Why is that an important thing to think about? Because that's when they're thinking. They're thinking these things. They're thinking we were a kingdom. We had the temple. We had God's presence. We had everything. And it was all dashed to the ground. Who are we? Who are we now? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Is God still faithful? And so they go back and they look through all the stories that they already have. And they put them together. If you go through the book of Kings and Chronicles, it'll say, and there's more stuff about this king written in the annals of the kings of Israel, the annals of the kings of Judah. So there were other books that were about the whole history of these kings. These books were written with a specific purpose in mind, trying to get you to identify something that's going on with the kingdom and the people of God. What's happening? What have we done wrong? How do we make these things right in the future? What kind of future does God still have for us? So from those questions, we ask then, why is the story of Daniel important? Because we're going to be looking at the story of Daniel in the book of Daniel for the next, I don't know how many weeks. There may be some back and forth. It may not just be this series through the time. We'll see what happens. Um, but what's going to be about this story? Because Daniel takes place during the Babylonian exile, but it, it ends before the people have gone back to Israel before the people get to go back to their home. So what are they looking at 
here? What are they trying to figure out is important? Why is this story written the way this story is written? What does God have in mind for his people thinking about the book of Daniel? So that's the big question that we're asking as we go through this. And what does this story have to teach us today? Right? We want to know what does this have for us? All right. So let's read a couple verses, then we're going to do a little bit more work, and then we're going to read some more. So the first two verses. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house. Next week, I'm going to get this fixed because that is way too small on the screen. So I'm going to make that look better for next time. But I didn't have time to do it this morning when I realized it was too small. So what's already happened here? What's already happened in the first two verses? Who gave Nebuchadnezzar permission to destroy Babylon, to destroy Jerusalem? The Lord. The Lord gave him permission to go in and besiege it. He gave him permission, basically, to go and take people out. He gave him permission to go and raid the temple for the sacred objects. Boy, that's a big thing to write at the beginning of a book about Daniel by the people who wrote this, the Jewish people. So what are they already recognizing from the first lines? Who's in control? The Lord. Is Nebuchadnezzar in control? No, Nebuchadnezzar is not the ultimate authority here. Already we see in the first lines who is the one in control of everything. God is in control of everything. Okay, that's a really important foundational piece to start off with. Okay, let's talk about a couple more things of the background. Begins in 605 B.C., That's during this reign of Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar reigns from 605 to 562 B.C. Remember in B.C., so we're counting down to zero first before A.D. where we start counting up again. Uh, So he has a long reign as a king. So a lot of the stories that are in the book of Daniel take place while Nebuchadnezzar is king. And we're going to see how Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is God and that God puts him in his place more than once. This is the king who destroys Solomon's temple. So at this time in 605 BC, he's just raided it. But he comes back 20 years later in 586 BC. He destroys Jerusalem. The walls get ripped down. The buildings get torn down. The temple gets destroyed. This beautiful, wonderful temple. Solomon takes seven years to build. It's phenomenal. It's one of the most incredible things in the world. Ripped to shreds, torn to the ground. Who does it? Nebuchadnezzar. So do you think the Jewish people were big Nebuchadnezzar fans? I don't think so. I don't think so. They were not. All right. Let's read some more. Starting in verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said, Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kingdom. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Okay, what's happened now? Are we, are we happy here? So these kidnapped young men from royal and noble families are now forced into service for the king who kidnapped them. And they're going to be trained for three years, make sure that they're the good ones, he basically says, and prepare them to work for me, 
So what are they? They're slaves. They're slaves to the empire. All right. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Okay, so what's going on now? Daniel is being asked to do something he knows he is not supposed to do as part of God's law. So what does he say? Daniel said, I'm not going to do that. Give me, give me permission to do things differently. Attendants like, well, I'm a little afraid about this. Okay, so what's Daniel going to do next? Verse 11. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. So what's Daniel do? He makes a wager, basically, right? He sets up a test. Test it. With us. Doesn't that seem, I don't know, reasonable? Talk about that again in a minute. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and water or wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Okay, so what just happened? Let's walk through this again. Daniel is kidnapped, and he becomes a slave. He has some choices to make now, doesn't he? How is he going to be, how is he going to live in light of his new fate? The officials try to make him conform, right? They try, they change his name. They give him a name after one of their gods. Belteshazzar is actually one of the gods' names. And they give Daniel this name. They rename his friends. They have taken him away from his family, his roots, to how he was supposed to live. They have put him with these other men who are not Jewish, who are secular, who are 
believing in whatever other pagan gods. They're trying to change his food. They're trying to change everything about him. Would it be easy to just do what the culture around him says to do? <laughs> yeah, it would. Yeah, it would. That's, that's the easy way, right? You just go with the flow of what everything around you is talking about. But Daniel would not be swayed from God's way. A couple years ago, we watched a Tony Evans series. I don't even remember what it was about, but I remember one of the lessons, he made a big deal about this line, but Daniel. Because what happens here is Daniel sets his mind to do what God wants. Up to this point, the thing that God has done in the story is he's let Nebuchadnezzar come and kidnap Daniel. But Daniel chooses to follow God's way, right? In that, he reasonably proves that God's way is better, doesn't he? This is not blind faith for him. He says, I know this is what God wants. Test it. Test it. Have you ever tested God's way? I don't mean laying out a fleece and praying and seeing if God will make it wet while the ground is dry. Have you ever had something that God asked you to do? Not you personally necessarily, something that you found in the Bible and tried it out to see if it was actually better than the way the world around you wanted to be? You, you can actually do that with the things in the Bible. You can actually do that. Because the things that God says, and especially as Christians, we think of things like the Sermon on the Mount, the way that Jesus teaches us actually is better. And if we live that out in our lives, we can test that, and we will find that it brings goodness to our lives and to the communities around us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Staying true to God's way led to God using them for his purpose. So what does God end up doing? He gives them rich blessing. He gives them understanding. He, he brings them into a place where all of a sudden, are they in Babylon still? Yep. They don't get to go home. They're living in Babylon. They're going to die in Babylon. This is their future for the rest of their life. But where does God put them? He promotes them up. Does this remind you of another story in the Bible? It should. Joseph. This reminds me of the story of Joseph. Egypt was the Babylon of its day. It was the kingdom that was doing things not the way that God wanted. But even then, Joseph sold as a slave, and he gets brought up interpreting dreams until he is the second person in command in all of Egypt. God is putting his people in places of power in this that they might bring goodness to the land that they are in. Okay, so what's it mean for us? What's it mean for us? We've already kind of talked about some of these things. Our takeaway, Jesus' message, and this is, this is where we're going we're gonna to turn it up a little bit. It's going to get a little tough. Jesus' message, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, has real socio-political meaning. What are we saying here? When Jesus was on earth, and then in the time right after when the disciples are running around, and then the time after the disciples have passed or been killed, most of them, and the next generation of Christians is around, what did they say? They said, Jesus is Lord. What did everybody else say? They said, Caesar is Lord. Did that mean something? Yeah, that meant something, because they were saying something that was directly opposed to the government that they were living in. But were they causing 
disorder and horrible things and doing all kinds of stuff. No. What were they doing? They were loving their neighbors. They were taking care of the poor. They were watching out for people who were on the margins. They were loving and blessing people. It didn't matter their wealth. It didn't matter where they were from. It didn't matter any of these things. They were becoming this community of radical love. And that upset the empire because the empire required people to be in their place. This is where you belong in the status quo of what's going on. And if that gets disintegrated, it diminishes our power as the empire. Ooh, and we don't want that. We don't want our power diminished. So we don't like what you're doing. So becoming part of God's kingdom had real socio-political meaning. It really affected the way people lived, and it really affected the way that their government, Rome, even Israel, saw them in the world. And it could cause problems, couldn't it? Were they causing problems? No. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But it was still causing problems. Okay. I'll read you this quote from Tony Campolo. I've read it before. It says, we may live in the best Babylon in the world. Uh-oh. He's talking about today. One of the versions of this quote starts off with, I love America. And America may be the best Babylon in the world, but it is still Babylon. And we are called to come out of her, Revelation 18.4, and recognize that our ultimate citizenship belongs to another kingdom. What did Daniel know when he was living in Babylon? Was he a Babylonian? Would he ever bend to becoming a Babylonian? No. He belonged to God. And he belonged to God's kingdom. And he belonged to God's kingdom beyond anything else. Right? Living and acting in service to God's kingdom and role is our calling. When you entered the waters of baptism, when you said, I believe Jesus is the son of God and I want to change and I want to follow him, you said, my identity, my citizenship, who I am, belong to God. And suddenly all the borders fall away, all the nationalities fall away, and we become part of the global kingdom of God that will stand forever. And our priorities have to change, don't they? Our priorities have to shift. Because Babylon wants us to do certain things and to live a certain way and to think about those people a certain way and to think about this group a certain way. How does Jesus want us to think about people? How does Jesus want to look at our neighbor? How does Jesus, that's love, love. Man, did you watch the presidential debate and see a lot of love? I don't need to say anything else. God can and will use us towards his glory and blessing our neighbor. Now, what's interesting about the story of Daniel, does Daniel go hide in a corner and stay away and create a community that exists within Babylon but isn't part of Babylon? No, he doesn't. What does he actually do? He works for the empire. But what 
issues of God's kingdom in their faces. And it gets him in trouble sometimes, and it gets his friends in trouble sometimes. We're going to see a, flame, a, a fiery furnace. We're going to see a den of lions. We're going to see these things that happen where they have to stand there and put their lives at risk for God's kingdom. But they do. And what does God do? God can and will use us towards his glory and blessing our neighbors. Because that's what the kingdom is, right? The kingdom is justice and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is, is transforming. The kingdom is showing people who think they don't matter that they are valuable in God's eyes. The kingdom is us loving each other in radical, radical ways that the world doesn't understand and that don't fit the categories that people have set up. That's what we are called to, and it is a good thing. It might get us in trouble. Somebody might not like it who has power because it upsets power when we love each other in radical ways. When we say we're going to share what we have and we're going to take care of each other. When we say we don't, we don't really need the things that Babylon offers because God has us. God has us. We don't need the wine and the rich meat. We can live on the good vegetables of God. This is our story. This is our story. This is our story. So, challenge. In whatever choices you make in the coming weeks, and you guys know what I'm talking about, study and consider the teaching and wisdom of Jesus. Do you know what Jesus' priorities are? Do you know what Jesus cares about? Do you know where Jesus' passion is for people? May that be our passion too. Because what do we pray? What do we pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is not just a sweet sentiment. That prayer means something. If God's kingdom is going to come and take over everything, what does that mean? That means the other kingdoms have to go. That's uncomfortable. But do we believe God's kingdom is good? Oh, yes. Do we believe God's kingdom is full of love? Oh, yes. Do we believe God's kingdom will make us the kind of people we were designed to be from creation? Oh, yes. It is so good, and it is so worth it. And in this time, it might require sacrifice or difficulty or discomfort, but God's kingdom is so good. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you still need to say yes to following God's way, if you haven't joined the kingdom, if you haven't experienced the radical love that Jesus has for you, then don't wait anymore. If you're not sure, test it. Test it. Because God's goodness can be reasonably tested. Because the way he set things up makes for a better world today, not just somewhere down the line in the future. If you need anything today, why don't you come forward as we stand and as we sing.